Welcome to the first episode of my podcast. What you're about to listen to is a conversation I had with Yath, who's a final year medical student in UCL, a designer, a YouTuber, and he sends out an amazing newsletter every week on self-improvement. In this episode, I'll talk to him about balancing medical school and content creation, how he's effectively building his audience on YouTube, and how he handles self-doubt, fear of judgment, and negative comments while doing all of this. I hope you find this episode useful for your growth while pursuing your passions. So you make videos on YouTube. You have a weekly newsletter that's been growing consistently for 44 weeks now. Is it 44? Yeah, 45, yeah. yeah. 45. You're also a designer and also a medical student. So when people actually ask you, what do you do? What do you usually tell them? Um, okay, that's, that's interesting. Of, of course, my first thing that I always tell people is that I'm a medical student. I think that's what defines me. That's my main thing. That's my core thing. Uh, and then if you were to go lateral to that, design comes next for me. Um, I've always been a, well, I've always dabbled in design and for the last five years, always, uh, taken on freelance design projects. So design certainly is the second thing for me. Um, and then everything else is just more to do with my brand and my personal, like what I'm trying to build and what I'm trying to uh, provide to the people that sort of follow me for my stuff. I wouldn't per se say that, you know, I'm a newsletter writer or I'm a YouTuber. These are just things that I do. I exist on these platforms um, and I share some value. So I think in terms of my personal identity, I would say um, I'm a medical student firstly, then I do some design on the side, and then I share some value online from time to time. And I, and I think for a lot of us who are medical students who are doing a lot of other things, uh, we still have to always put medical medicine first, considering how much time we put into it. And I think Absolutely. one thing that any other medical student would want to know is how do you actually, knowing that you have all this work to do and you're in your fifth year, final year, um, how have you been actually making sure that you put in enough time into medicine, but also continue building your brand? Because, I mean, I can imagine that obviously there's a trade-off, but when do you know which one to put your efforts into? Yeah, sure. Um, so there's actually a video on my channel, which is all about how I manage my time and I, how I find time for, you know, to do these things on the side. So cheeky plug there, but no, for real, I think, it comes down to what really interests you and where your passions lie. Um, I can't lie and I have to be honest and say that uh, definitely the current situation has helped a lot. Um, us being inside uh, a lot more than previously, um, finding ourselves with time that we might not otherwise have, you know, um, pre-pandemic, I might have been spending certain evenings uh, socializing or hanging out with friends. Um, that just isn't happening anymore. So certainly I have a lot more time these days to pursue these online things. Um, so it'll be interesting to see how that goes after the lockdown and after things sort of normalize. Um, but for me, it's basically being really rational and being really honest with my time um, and thinking to myself, okay, what's going to be the most, what's, what's the thing that's going to make me the most happiest? Um, and design has always been up there. Like I just really enjoy designing. Um, and so that's always something I've tried to incorporate into what I do. Uh, medicine for sure takes up a big chunk of my time and I have to be really, uh, you know, careful with it because medicine is a really long degree and I'm in my final year now. So it would be absolutely horrendous for me to you know, lose sight, lose focus and, um, you know, fail or like mess up, mess up in the last hurdles. Um, so definitely medicine gets a lot of my attention, a lot of my time. Um, and then YouTube and my weekly newsletter. Uh, comes after these two things. Um, so for me to be more active with my YouTube and my newsletter, I've had to cut down on design. Uh, so I don't actively take on any projects anymore. Um, and that's been a little bit, it's been okay because I still design for my YouTube channel and I do still design for my newsletter. So I'm still, you know, fueling my design interests in that way now for a personal project rather than for uh, client projects. So design is still there. Um, but I've certainly, you know, removed the paid work in terms of design. So that frees up time. Um, and then the other things, so for example, YouTube and newsletter, these are commitments that have got easier with time as well and much more efficient. So uh, making a YouTube video doesn't take me as long 
as it used to. And writing a newsletter is now honestly like an hour, like it would take me an hour uh, on Wednesdays, which is when I sort of publish every week. Um, and that, that used to be more sort of in the range of like a half day. So being able to do something consistently over time is going to help you become more efficient. And so that makes things quicker. So yeah, it's, it's one of those things like, I don't think I can take on any more than what I do because then I'd be struggling for time. Um, but I found this nice sort of system, this nice sort of balance where I've made certain processes efficient enough for me to, you know, balance these multiple things. Yeah. And I think one, I mean, one of the reasons why I think this question is actually important because even when I even just did photography, people would ask me, how do you find the time with medicine and photography? And for me, it was like, it's not that hard. I, I don't think, it, of course, if you want to put in all that work in medicine and spend all your time doing it, then you, you'll probably do very well and you won't have time for other things. But I don't know if this is a known thing that there's still a lot of time for us to do other things in our lives. And depending, of course, you might like sacrifice your grades for maybe something that you could be getting an 80 and you go back down to a 60. And it's up to you whether, you know, how much you value all those things and what you want to do with it, which is, I guess, the answer to anyone saying, how do you actually have the time to study medicine and do something else? It's just like you said, try to be as efficient as you can with everything else. And you need to understand your trade-offs. So at times when you actually need to study and get things done, then you do it. But I know that you are, I know, I know we've talked about in the past where like batch creation and batch editing, the same thing with batch studying. If you batch everything, you could probably do a lot more things, but it's just about efficiency and not prioritizing things like, I mean, there are a lot of things that we do or we used to do pre-pandemic that I would think, you know, going out and being with friends. I mean, all those extra hours has also given me a lot of time. So I guess for you, I mean, you found that time and I guess your newsletter, did you start it before COVID or after? Yeah. So the newsletter was a thing that I've always wanted to do. Um, maybe since like about two years ago, I think that's when I kind of like thought to myself, okay, I want to, I want an outlet where I can write and just express my thoughts. Um, and then it was sort of like work in progress since then. So I first created a website, didn't really have any content on it, but I started building some, some emails. So, uh, registering sort of emails and just collecting, uh, stuff that way. And then it was just when the pandemic hit, I kind of saw, uh, you know, it's really hard to avoid, but you kind of see it online, uh, everyone doing like new projects or starting things, um, it, which is like a phenomenon that we had at this very first start of the pandemic. Um, everyone was just doing like new things. Uh, so I thought, you know, I've got time now. Let's do this. Uh, let's, let's write this newsletter. So yeah, for me, it was very much at the start of the pandemic. That's when I got started. Um, and then I did have my fears, like, would I be able to continue it after things sort of settled down? Um, and, you know, here in the UK, things did settle down for some time, um, you know, around August till like November-ish. Um, and I was still able to cope with it. I was still able to do it fine. So, um, yeah, it's just been a progress since, since then. Yeah. And I just found that, I mean, even from the very beginning, I think you knew what you wanted to do. And you kind of focused your work on self-improvement and personal growth. And that's something that most of your issues have covered over the last 45 weeks. So, but why did you choose a newsletter when a lot of people were instantly heading towards podcasts, YouTube, and definitely using Instagram and TikTok? Like, why did you choose a method that even when I tell other people, you know, a newsletter is great, building an email list is great, but they're like, hmm, but that's... Isn't that from the past? Isn't that, isn't blogging and emails, are they dead? So why did you decide a newsletter? Yeah. So this is, this is like a really good question. I'm happy that you asked. Um, so for those that don't know, there's a guy called David Perel, um, and he writes a lot of amazing stuff to do with self-improvement, self-growth, and just really like really thought provoking content. And I read one of his, um, articles, uh, like a year or so ago. And it was about this, this concept that when you have a social media platform, such as YouTube, Instagram, or even Twitter, um, 
you don't actually own the audience. So yeah, you might have a collected about, I don't know, 10,000 followers or a million subscribers or whatever, whatever that number is. Um, and they may follow you on that platform. Um, but ultimately the platform owns those, you know, people or that audience. And one day if the platform was to, you know, disappear, um, get deleted or whatever, like, you know, like Bebo was a thing in the past and it just evaporated uh, one day. Um, so if that was to ever happen, then your audience would also go with that. Um, and the only way to really have your own audience that you own completely, um, it sounds a little bit narcissistic to say that like you own your audience, but it's just that it's, it's a di more direct connection that you have with your audience. And the only thing that kind of allows for that is like a newsletter or like a mailing list where, you know, people have given you their emails and now you can just email them directly and send something to them. Uh, so your content, rather than you pushing it on Twitter, you pushing on YouTube, and then they seeing it there, you can push content directly to them. Um, and it causes the bridge where you initially have to start off on social media to find these people, but then you can move them across the bridge into your private platforms, which is, uh, you know, either like paid communities or mailing lists. Um, and that's why I thought, you know, if I'm going to start to grow an audience, I already have these three sort of platforms, Instagram, Twitter, um, I didn't have YouTube, but I did have the other two. Um, and I had some people there that followed me for whatever reason. So I thought, if I'm going to take this now seriously and try to grow an audience, let me just do the best thing, which is to go private from the start um, and build it that way. Um, because now I have, it's not a lot, but I have 830-ish subscribers. And these are 830 people that have voluntarily given me their emails. Um which now means that if I was to ever, you know, launch a product or do something new or just express myself in any way, I can just go directly and email them. Um, and that's a unique thing, I think, rather than being on social media platforms. Yeah. And I think in, in many marketing books, even now, building an email list is like at the forefront of so many recommendations because like, just like you said, you want to have this connection with your audience and you, but you don't want to rent your audience with this platform. So it's like you're renting your audience and your subscribers on YouTube, but they're not yours. So I guess one thing that might be daunting for a lot of people is that, uh, or not so much daunting. I just feel one of the problems that people might have is that, um, you're not actually sure what's working. You're not actually, you're trying to figure out, okay, it's not really growing. People are not really sharing it because when you're on Instagram and YouTube, you're letting the algorithm share it. So with the newsletter and how you've grown up to what you have now, how do you feel was the best way for you to actually grow it? Mm -hmm. um, yeah. So I think to best explain this, um, I want to talk about this thing that I read from the book, uh, Oversubscribed by Daniel Priestley. Um, and in this book, he talks about a phenomenon called the, I think it's the 7-11-4 principle. Um, and that's that to make one meaningful connection or one meaningful audience member, that's like your true fan, someone that really appreciates your work and will, you know, buy in or help you or promote you in any way whenever you do something. To form those connections, you need to do 7411. That's seven hours of sort of content. You have to provide them with seven hours worth of content. Uh, you have to interact with them, I think, 11 times, and you have to do this in four different places. Um, and that's what I've tried to really do. So I've tried to do the 7114. So I've tried to provide people as much content as possible. And I've done this on social media with daily tweets, Instagram posts, and YouTube videos, and then also weekly newsletters. So I've tried to, you know, throw as much free content and hopefully valuable content at people as possible. So that fulfills the seven hours of content type thing. And then I've tried to interact with the people that interact with me. So anyone that emails me regarding my newsletter or like says like, oh, this was really interesting or I had a further question, I try my best to reply to them. I try to make those 11 interactions. And this is also the same for Twitter and Instagram DMs as well. Um, if anyone tweets at me, I'll like it because that's still an interaction. Um, I'll show that I've seen it. I'll, if I can reply to it, I will reply to it as well. Um, and that way I'll create those levels of interactions with the people that reach out to me. Um, and then finally, four different places. In the virtual, so in, in his book, he talks about four physical places. So that could be you meeting them for like a 
coffee and then you're having a I don't know Zoom call with them and then you know you meet them other another like talk or a guest show or whatever four different locations but virtually or like in terms of like social media and stuff I just think of it as four different platforms um because I've seen the same people reach out to me on YouTube comment on my videos and then also DM me on Instagram and then also tweet at me so that's three and then if they emailed me, that's a fourth. Um, and with some, some people that have like really reached out and like asked me specific questions, I've been like, I think you'll benefit from a Zoom call. Let's have a Zoom call and let's talk about this. Um, so I really tried to do the whole four location thing as well, virtually. Um, so when, when you do that, you form what Daniel Priestley calls, uh, true fans, people that would then take your work and share it with more people and automatically sort of start working for you and build your audience for you. Um, and I, I guess in simple terms, that's word, word of mouth or like, uh, marketing through word of mouth. Right. Um, and that's how you can like really grow a newsletter or like a private platform where there's no real algorithm to help you or boost you out. You really need to form those seven eleven four relationships. Yeah. And I guess one thing that a lot of us are not used to when we first start is to actually put in that work to engage with people. And mm -hmm. um, I feel like it might be overwhelming at the beginning when you start having more and more people coming to you and you're responding to them. And you're trying to make sure that, at least for me, you're trying not to make sure that you're trying to make sure that you're not diluting what you're saying. But mm -hmm. over time, when you're starting to respond to more and more people, how, do you ever feel overwhelmed? Because it's just because at some point you're going to realize that, I mean, you know, maybe you're not thinking about it now, but at some point you won't be able to give that same quality over and over. Or how do you feel about that? Yeah. Um, yeah, I think as you grow, it certainly gets more frequent, these interactions. Um, and there do, there, there, I do feel like there will come a time where I can't physically uh, reply to everyone or interact with everyone in the same way. Um, but the, the thing that I'm starting to pick up or the trends that I'm starting to pick up is that most times the questions are very similar in nature. Uh, for example, I, I get asked literally on a day to day basis, uh, what programs or what software do you use to design? Um, and I often say like Figma, Procreate, Canva for XYZ reasons. Um, so what I'm thinking more and more is actually, if there are such like evergreen questions that constantly get asked, uh, why don't I just create some content around this? Uh, so that, you know, rather than me uh, typing out a paragraph to be like, you know, this is what I use and this is what I think you should do. I can now, you know, point them in a the direction of a piece of content that I've created uh, because I get asked it so often. Uh, so one of the videos that I have in my pipeline for my YouTube channel is like, uh, you know, the three design apps that I use every day in 2021. Um, and then, so if I have that video on my channel, Hopefully that would mean less people ask me in the first place, but also if people do ask me, I can just, you know, copy paste link, send it to them. And that will still provide them with value. That will still count as an interaction, but it would be less workload on my end. Um, I've done that with, um, how I created my website. So how I created my website is actually by following this guide from a friend of mine. So every time now people ask me, um, how did you design your website? What platform did you use? You know, I just grab his like really long article, which is a link. Um, and I just send it to people. I'm like, this is what I used. Maybe you want to use it as well. Maybe it'll be helpful. Um, and that's a lot quicker than for me to, you know, sit there and write an entire paragraph explaining every single aspect. Yeah. And, um, I, I thought the same as well recently when it comes to just people ask me about weight loss all the time. And after a while, how many times can I say the same thing over and over? Uh, not that I don't want to, obviously, but mm. I, I tend to miss out certain things from time to time. But if I create one block of document, then at least I know that that person gets the same quality every time. And you can always have Q&As, right? So that's something that all the people that actually watch your content, you can still have a separate thing for a group so that they can ask you further questions. But I think that's right. a really great idea for nearly anyone who is passionate about something like you don't have to create content, but if you do want to help people and you don't want to think of it as like, I'm a content creator, mm -hmm. which of course is not a, I mean, once you create content, you are a content creator. There isn't a thing. Um, but it, it's a, probably still a good idea to actually have a blog and put out what you care about so that you can just send links to people uh, mm -hmm. so that they actually gain value each and every time. And you don't have to spend more and more time. And yeah, so I think that's a, yeah, that's actually a great way to actually do a lot of things. And if you don't want to create a website, then 
I guess you can just have a shared document and just type it out. I mean, it's really simple. Like you don't have to go up into building a website or putting out a YouTube video, but if you mm -hmm. want to put it on Notion or you want to put it on Google Docs and you just share that link, then I think it's pretty easy. Yeah, yeah. for sure. For sure. Um, I think websites are generally speaking a good thing to have. Um, and yeah, that's a whole discussion in itself, I guess. Uh, but yeah, for sure. There's so many ways of, you know, just accumulation data that you can just quickly send out to people. Like you mentioned, Notion, Google Docs, both great places to do that. But I, I think that I'm a huge supporter of everyone just having a website. And um, right. if, like, at least depending on how common your name is, try to buy your domain name, your first name and your last name. Or if you're lucky, just your first name. Mm -hmm. uh, and then, and .com if you're lucky again. Um, and then put something there. Kind of have this like, you don't need to give away a lot of data about yourself. I think just put something there for the future or try to put up something you care about so you can help others. And um, th that's what I've been telling as many people as, as I can and especially people who are going to become doctors. I'm like, okay, you never know what you're going to do with medicine. You might think that ah, I don't need a LinkedIn. I don't need a website. I'm just going to be a doctor. But I mean, I, I, I respect that. I don't, I'm not expecting anyone to be more and more. I think that, yeah, but at least try to get your name. If anything, get a doctor and then your name, you know, whatever it is, try to get, try to save that domain name and, uh, put a portfolio on there if you have one, but, um, but okay. Yeah. I mean, this is one of those things where I think, uh, if you, if you start telling everyone that they need to start creating content, uh, I think, I think it's very overwhelming. So I think, you know, if you just have a simple website or a shared document and you share with people that you care about your passions, I think that's pretty much enough, but so eventually, so I guess eventually once you've started to build a newsletter at what point, how many weeks in did you then decide, okay, I'm going to start my YouTube channel. Yeah. Um, I think, okay, so I started my newsletter in April, um, and I started my YouTube channel in August, both in 2020. So that's what, four, four-ish months apart. Um, and yeah, I don't, I don't actually know where I kind of like thought to myself, okay, now is the right time for YouTube. I don't think I waited for the right time. I, I mainly, had this sort of like fear of like fear of judgment, fear of just speaking to the camera. So once I was able to do the newsletter, gain some confidence, uh, see people resonate with my ideas, I was, there was just a natural progression. I was like, okay, maybe there is a voice here. Maybe people do resonate with what I say. Uh, now let me just do the YouTube bit. Um, so I think the newsletter definitely gave me a lot of confidence. Um, but I don't think I was, planning on making the YouTube channel at a specific point. It sort of just naturally progressed into that. Um, and I'm happy that it did in that way. Yeah. And, and I think even when I watched your YouTube videos after reading your newsletters, uh, it just naturally did, you did reflect pretty much what you were writing. Um, obviously over the last, I think you put out 26, about 26 videos now. And right. it's, it's quite clear how naturally you've gone from the way you were talking at the beginning and how you're doing it now. Um, and also your writing style has also changed as well. And I guess right. that's something that a lot of us kind of feel like we want to be a certain way. Uh, we look at someone and then we're like, okay, that's not how we are now. But those people mm -hmm. are not even how they are now compared to what they were back in the, like when you started. So, right. but I guess when you mentioned fear of judgment and um, what will people think, I think that's a, constant feeling that we all have when we put ourselves out there. And, mm. and I think it's very interesting that you thought, okay, I'm going to put this newsletter out, or at least when you put the newsletter out, when you felt that it was like a viable product, you decided, okay, let's just take it into video form and see how it goes. So for people that actually are fearing judgment on YouTube, would you recommend them to try to do also something, um, let's say, something that's text-based before going onto video? Yeah. Um, I think everyone's fear is going to be slightly different. Um, I think certain people may even fear writing more than video because I think when you write something, it's con concrete, right? Like 
if you write a sentence and put it on the internet, that is your sentence. You said those words, you put it in that order. But if you make a video, you can kind of say, oh, but um, I was I didn't clarify myself enough or um, maybe I, I messed up a few words or whatever. Um, I feel like a video is still slightly less concrete, less formal than written stuff. So I think certain people have different fears and certain people might even favor doing video first and then maybe something else. Uh, for me, it was very much the opposite. I think I felt comfortable in my writing style. I certainly wasn't good. I don't think I'm great now either. I'm still finding myself. And as you said, my style has definitely changed. And I think it's heading in the right direction. And I'm really happy with that. Um, but for sure, I would say um, why I started writing before video, uh, you have to stay, take it a step foot back further to explain it. And that's mainly because... Uh, before I wrote those articles, I was distilling insights on Twitter and also on my Instagram stories. So rather than an entire article, I would just write one point. So let's say Parkinson's law or like, you know, some sort of productivity hack. Um, I would just tweet about it or I'd put it on my Instagram stories. And that would be my form of sharing one piece of value to the people that follow me. Um, and then naturally that progressed into a written article. And then naturally that progressed into video. So for me, it was a block by block thing. I started with the smallest subunit, which was just one piece of information to at least one person. And then it was one bigger piece of information to many people. And then it was video to many in that way. Yeah. And I guess that's such a, that's such a great way to, um, to be in control of your wins and to actually make sure that, okay, is this working? Um, how are people feeling about it? And then actually make it bigger, bigger. And um, but even then, I guess even if you're posting the smallest piece of content, you can still face the fear of rejection or the fear of failure or fear of judgment. And so, as you progress from each phase, how did that affect you, or how did you feel like you were overcoming the fear of judgment? Mm. I think when you put yourself out there, you get feedback. Where that's positive, ne negative, you don't know, but you're definitely going to get feedback. Um, that may be very subtle things or very simple things like uh, likes, retweets, shares, whatever. You get that feedback. Um, but then when you write as well, people, you know, will read your stuff, hopefully, and then they will either reply to you or they will tell you something, right? And so when I first started my newsletter, I started getting these sort of uh, email replies from people that had been subscribed uh, telling me that, uh, you know, this thing resonated with them. And even in some cases, people being like, you know, your your stuff is changing my life or like, you know, something crazy like for me to comprehend. Um, and that naturally blows away the fear complex and the judgment complex because when you see yourself providing value to at least one person and when that one person is telling you that you're providing value, it just instantly evaporates. You're like, okay, fine. What I'm doing it is worth it. Because at the end of the day, if you're helping at least one other person become better in any way, any shape, any form, uh, that's all it really takes for you to overcome that fear complex. Um, even to this day, I do have certain fears like uh, when will I get my first hate comment or when I get dislikes on YouTube videos, I'm like, why Why would people want to do this? Like I put in so much time, effort into making these videos. Um, I'm not even like saying anything controversial. Uh, most times my things are really neutral or positive. So why are people disliking my content? So it, it never truly goes away. And it's something that you learn to deal with better rather than it being removed from your mindset or from your uh, thought process. It's something that you definitely suppress rather than eliminate. Yeah. And... I think that's a really good point that if you just focus on providing one person value and you don't try to overwhelm yourself with the fact that I got to do, I got, I got this many people that have to like it, this many people that have to give me feedback, but th these are very super like liking, commenting, and just the idea of commenting and the idea of views are vanity metrics that I just feel that it, it doesn't really tell you the story. And sometimes when they go up and down, you're not in control of them. And then you feel like, oh, my piece of content is not that great. Um, you know, people didn't open my email, people didn't watch my video. But if you know that you're helping one other person, because all of us can help one other person, 
not all of us may be a huge YouTuber, but every one of us can help one other person and we can slowly work it out from there. Right. And so I think definitely, as you said, if we just continuously think about the people we help, we can just not worry about the people that we're not because there will always be people that don't like our work that are not benefiting from anything that we do. And that's perfectly fine, right? Because that's how it works. I mean, there's some people that people are just different. So you just help the people that will want it and the people that don't want it. Well, sometimes they come at you, but I mean, you just have to focus on the ones that care. Yeah. But, yeah. To, yeah. to just add to that, um, I was having this discussion with a few of my sort of creator friends um, on YouTube and we, we, it was mainly towards like uh, criticism and negative criticism and how to sort of deal with that. And I guess that ties into judgment because if we were fearing positive judgment, I don't think anyone would ever have that fear. It's always we're fearing the negative judgment, right? Um, so it does tie into judgment. And it's that if you look at the people that you look up to, for example, within fitness, I'm not sure who you might look up to, but certainly for me, I'm a huge tennis guy. So I look up to Roger Federer as an inspiration, as a role model. Um, generally saying he's an amazing guy as well as an amazing tennis player. But even if you look at those people, they have people criticizing them. So even the people that you think are the best, you think are absolutely perfect, even they are getting criticized by people. So everyone will get criticized by some people, but for that some people, you will always have positive criticism or positive feedback and positive judgment. So, you know, you can't please everyone, but the people that you please will bring so much value, satisfaction and happiness to you that, you know, you can keep going with that. Um, and it's just more a case of how you begin to suppress the negative uh, judgment. Yeah. And, and I think um, it's, it's interesting. You, you'll, like you said, you, you'll see people that are doing amazing things and they'll still receive hate. So kind of like, who do you think you are that you won't get hate? So it's already coming, but mm. don't worry about it. Like, it's not about you. There are a lot yeah. of people that do great things and they get it. So it's not about them either. Right. So I think that's a reminder that we all have to remember and something that maybe as kids, we, we, as a protective factor, you know, we want people to like us because if we're not liked in school, uh, you know, we're not liked by the people around us. We just don't get the validation over and over and something that we learn as kids. And of course, when we become mm. adults, we kind of carry that on with us. And then we're like, we want to make people as, you know, as many people as happy as possible. But when we're creating value on the internet and, or anywhere, uh, you're probably going to be disliked. You are. And I feel like one thing that I, I read or I saw somewhere was that if you're not being hated, you're also not going to be loved. And I think that's a little extreme, but there is some truth to that, that when a group really loves you, there will be a group that really doesn't like what you're talking about because it's really quite niche to another group. And there are always groups that are just against each other. So right. people who love, uh, you know, intermittent fasting, which I think intermittent fasting works, but it also doesn't work at the same time. And so there are two groups of people that have had it work and one that doesn't have it work. And if you talk about IF, the other person, will, they, they'll hate you, but mm -hmm. you just don't, have to worry about it because you know that it works for that one group. Yeah. But I think trying to teach this to people is a little bit difficult. Um, I, I'm trying my best to tell people as much as possible that you have to just try to help that one person and then two and three. Yeah. The moment that the other 7.4 billion plus people don't like you, like don't worry about them first. One, two, three, and then work your way up. Right. And so when you have you got any um hate comments on or anything or on any platform uh i i haven't actually so i'm really grateful for that um but i'm i'm fully aware that it's going to come one day um <laughs> it's it's the it's the inevitable um but i have got like a fair few dislikes on my youtube videos which at first were like really depressing really sad like why are people doing this um and then you, you process everything that we've just spoken about um and then you kind of realize actually you know what yeah there's you know three dislikes but there's also 120 likes and there's also 80 positive comments and there's also a thousand plus views so there's all this positive stuff 
and then you're just focusing on the three negative bits. It's because, you know, I think psychologically, I don't know what the phenomenon is, but it's known that we just, our, our brains just focus on the bad things rather than focusing on everything else. You know, one dislike can immediately suppress all of the positive stuff and make you feel bad. Um, so it's just trying to understand that, appreciate that, and then think it through and be like, actually, wait, you know, who are these three people? They don't matter to me. I have all of these people that I've, you know, helped or they found this valuable, they've resonated with it. Therefore, that's, that's all I need. That's all I need. And I can keep going with that. Um, so yeah, I'm fortunate enough not to have found any hate comments. Um, but I think when I do come across that, I would just think through all of these things and just be like, fine, it is what it is. We move like, yeah. Because, right. But then see, we think that, right. And it, sometimes you, you still fall into a slight dip when it comes, like you remember, and sometimes you need these like reminders that it's fine because like even this video while we talk and I feel like we've, we've talked about some great things, um, will get disliked or might get disliked. And the point mm -hmm. is, if I believe that what we just said was something that should be disliked, then it will affect me. But I guess as much as I remember that, you know, I love what I do and I know I'm helping someone, then at least the hate or the dislikes, which I think dislikes are not the same as being like, there are levels to it, right? If someone writes you an email about how much they hate your videos, um, definitely will hit you a bit harder than, than dislikes, but trying to handle that. And then, you know, it gets more in my extreme, right? I'm sure there's some, I mean, huge YouTubers can, will probably be getting, it's even worse than hate. And, and, yeah. and, and you just suddenly have to start blocking out. And, um, I can't, I can't imagine their mental health and, and how, like we talk about social media and mental health, but I just can't imagine when you get such a flurry of hate and negativity, um, how can you actually block it out? And, um, and yeah, but every time I guess, so, but every time you actually put out a video and let's say, okay, you forget about, you forget about the negativity and you're like, okay, but do you ever feel like there's some kind of self doubt or some kind of feeling like, who am I to talk about this and that, even though like you're a designer, you are, you have worked on yourself for years you are a medical student, but sometimes when you talk about these things, do you ever feel like, who am I? Uh, yeah, a lot. I think every time I write a news article, newsletter article, I sometimes feel like that. Um, with some YouTube videos, I certainly feel like that. Um, especially recently, I made one about personal finance. And I was just thinking to myself in the entire time, like, who am I to be talking about personal finance? Um, but then... I come back to this thought that, um, Ali, Ali Abdal introduced to me. And that's that, uh, you know, we're all just guides and not gurus. Uh, when you start to think of yourself as a guru, the expert or the, you know, the, the, the coach in a certain thing, then you start to feel like then, then, then that imposter syndrome, that, that feeling that you're not qualified to talk about a certain thing is definitely going to kick in and you're going to feel that really hard and really harshly. But if you think of yourself as just a guide, someone just sharing your perspective, you, what you've learned, then there's no need to feel imposter about it or like any, any sense of inadequacy. Uh, because, you know, when I make a video about how I manage my time, I'm just telling people, uh, guys, you know, these are the things that work for me. Maybe they'll work for you. Maybe they, they won't, but this is what's worked for me. I'm just telling you my story, my, my journey, my process. Um, and that way it's not me being like, right, guys, these are seven tips that would definitely make you more productive. Uh, therefore you should try them out because I'm the expert. I'm the coach. I'm never trying to do that uh, in my videos. I'm always just being like, uh, guys, this is what I've learned. This is my journey. If it works for you, fine. Um, so yeah, I think the way I've kind of overcome that is to always remember guide, not guru. Be a guide. Don't try to be the expert. Um, you may one day be an expert in a certain thing. For example, as you and I are going to be doctors, hopefully we'll um, specialize in one thing. Um, and eventually we may accumulate so much knowledge in that one specialty that we may start to think of ourselves as an expert. But even in those cases, you, I think when you learn more and more and when you get more in depth into a certain thing, you naturally figure out that actually still you're just a guide. You, there's still so much to learn, still so much to develop. Uh, so I think 
once you eliminate the idea of being a guru or the expert and just always think of yourself as a guide, um, then that instantly vanishes. Yeah. And I, um, I think when it comes to at least putting ourselves out there, I guess before when you have like apprenticeship and then you over time then become a master and then, and then that structurally in society, um, initially you don't really have much say and then over time you will learn and sharpen your craft and then you start teaching others now with the tools that we have a lot of us at 18 can teach how can teach personal growth right and of course there are a lot of young people getting ridiculed for talking about uh how to live a more meaningful life and they're like 20 and it's like you you're only one quarter of the way um but what what do you think about people who, you know, that both sides? So people who ridicule saying that, oh, you've, you've you've not you're not there yet, but also people sharing their journey, just like you said. So how do you actually, um, let's say, if if someone's twenty five and they want to talk about personal finance, and they like you may not feel like, oh, I haven't achieved as much as I should. Um, what can they what can they like really tell themselves so that they can do what they need to do. But what's a good like format of telling people, this is what I know and, and you know, that's it. Yeah. Um, that is quite difficult because for me, the mantra has always been guide nor guru and that helps me. But if I was to think more into it, I would say, I think one thing, um, again, Ali, Ali Abdal, uh, told me uh, because I I have a role where I'm like a peer supporter slash alumni supporter um, on his part-time YouTuber Academy, which is like a course for YouTube creators. And I just kind of be there as like a support role, um, help people out. Initially, I thought to myself, I'm really underqualified for this role. Uh, why on earth do you want me? Um, but then he was like, actually, you know, you're actually one step ahead. Uh, a, lot, a lot of these people, um, may not have a YouTube channel or they may not have thought about it in the same depth as you, or they might not have even published as many videos as you. Therefore, you are one step ahead and therefore you do have a certain expertise level that's higher than that, than those people. So when I make made that video about personal finance on my YouTube channel, um, I thought to myself, yeah, I'm not an expert and I will never ever claim to be an expert, uh, always a guide, never a guru but I am one step ahead of someone who's never, ever thought about personal finance. Uh, for example, in that video, I spoke about four different investment strategies, um, you know, invest uh, savings accounts, stocks, cryptocurrency, um, and, you know, things like that. that. Those are four things that someone who's never thought about personal finance may not know. And therefore, I do have something to teach or something to share with those people. Um, so if you always think, in the thing that you're trying to write, create, or talk about, if you just think you're one step ahead of someone who hasn't thought about these things, then it makes you more comfortable doing it and making that content because who you're targeting is that one, are those people that are, you know, one step behind you. You're not targeting people that know so much more than you about health, personal finance, or whatever. You're just targeting the people one step behind you. Um, so if you think about that way, it helps you realize that you don't need to be an expert or know absolutely everything to teach people one step behind you. That's, that's, I think that's a great thought because it, I think it's easy to get bogged down by looking at other people that are teaching more people. Like some people have more steps below them. So the more groups of people that they can help and you might only have one group of people with one step below, but that's still one set of people that need your help. And of course, suddenly you're like, why listen to you who can only help with that step compared to someone else who has years in the game, who has multiple steps that they can help. And I think you kind of get bogged down thinking, but why me when they can listen to someone else? So what do you, what do you think about that? When, when someone thinks that, you know, but, but, but you, know, you, you might as well listen to someone who's more of an expert. Yeah, I think that comes down to basically relatability. Um, for example, when there's, okay, let's say, let's say, um, you're, you're wanting to learn about health, right? Uh, there's probably, um, 
performance coaches, there's probably health instructors, there's probably personal coaches, uh, what's it, what do you call it? Personal train, personal trainers, um, who train, you know, athletes or who train really high level, high order people. Um, and when, when, um, those, what am I thinking here? I've completely lost track of the question, actually. What, when, when relatability, when it comes to yeah. better than you, but. Right, 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 right. Uh, yeah. So when, if you were to think like the viewer, the audience, um, I would much rather get personal training or health advice from someone who's one step ahead of me than someone who's a super, super expert and has never worked with beginners ever in their life because they always work with athletes and high order people. Um, because when I go to the person that's just one step ahead of me, they're much more relatable. They understand the problems of a beginner. They understand the problems of where I am. Whereas someone who's at the top of the personal training game may not understand beginner problems. And they may be pushing me to do uh, workouts or exercises that are just well beyond my capability because that's what they're used to teaching and that's what they're used to doing. Um, so for me, it's certainly relatability. Uh, when it comes to YouTube, because that's a thing that I'm trying to actively grow. Um, I always go to creators that are like the 10k mark or the, you know, less than 100k subscribers. Um, and I go to them for advice because they've most recently been in my position. Whereas someone like Ali Abdal, who is a mentor to me, I wouldn't necessarily go him, go to him for certain things that I would want to learn from other people that are more relatable to my position and where I am as a, you know, beginner on YouTube. So I think it certainly comes down to relatability and that does shine through in with it, with, with audiences. I do think, um, people are always looking for people that they can relate to the most and therefore want to learn from them. And I think the a major problem with that is a lot of us don't fully believe that we have a unique set of traits that actually makes it relatable to a lot of people. And sometimes like, you don't actually realize that just because there are people better than you doesn't mean that they won't also listen to you. So like if I wanted to learn about YouTube, I can listen to you, I can listen to Ali, and I can listen to someone that's even bigger than him. I can listen to all three of you at the same time. I mean, from video to video, yeah. whatever it is, at least I'm understanding your experience, I'm understanding his experience, and how I think you mentioned many times that life is not a zero-sum game you can literally, most consumers will watch several videos to understand multiple perspectives. Right. So I yeah, think agreed. that's right. And, and you don't have to worry about why would people listen to you? You just have to put out what you have. But I think one thing that we've talked about in the past where it's good to like what you're doing to put several of your interests and your strengths together to create a brand of it on its own mm -hmm. because people want you because you're giving multiple perspectives. Like I can learn, I can learn how I can learn personal finance from anyone, but I can also learn personal finance from a fellow medic. Mm -hmm. So that's, then I'm like, Oh, but you're doing this. You, you're one step ahead of me. I don't know anything. And honestly, I don't, cause I don't, I don't invest anything. Mm -hmm. Um, that's probably a bad idea at my late stage of my twenties. But anyway, um, I, I'm not investing anything, but seeing you, even though I could listen to someone much bigger, the fact that you're doing it and you're also a medic and you're not too far ahead for me, I totally agree that it just feels like you understand and yeah. you might not understand, but it feels like you do. So that's, that's, that's why I think you're absolutely right that a lot of us need to just um, kind of see what we have and just make sure that, I mean, just remember that there are always people that have, that we've walked a road that others have not embarked on yet. So we're kind of helping them. But what do you think about mixing different things together? Because you're doing four, I guess, in a way your YouTube videos are, so you've mixed a few things together and a lot of people when they, you know, go on, 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 on social media marketing channels and videos, it's like pick your niche try to stick into it and keep going. But you've decided mm -hmm. to talk about a few things. So why did you decide to do that? Yeah, so this idea of niching is something that I've had to debate about and think about very uh, deeply. 
Um, and it's a reoccurring theme, especially that now that I'm a part of part-time YouTube Academy, uh, this is something that, you know, most members of the cohort will have tons to talk about and tons to debate about and tons to discuss. Um, but the one thing that I've learned is that to do content creation long-term, whatever platform it is, uh, you have to be really true to yourself and true to your values. Um, if you start to do one thing or one specific thing because you feel like, okay, if I niche down in this, if I just do this one thing, it's going to be really lucrative and you, you know, you're going to grow faster or you're going to attract a specific cohort of people, then that's not going to be true to yourself. Um, it might be, let's say you're, you're really interested in medicine and that's the only thing you're interested in. So if you created medical content, then yeah, fine, you might be. But I think for the vast majority of people, especially, you know, people like myself, people like you, uh, you have interests outside of medicine. You have interests outside of your core thing. Um, and I just wanted to be true to myself and I wanted to enjoy the process as much as possible. So if I just made design content, I think I would have got pretty bored because whilst I enjoy design, I also enjoy talking about other things. So if I was only ever talking about design, I feel like my outlet will be instantly restricted and I just wouldn't enjoy it because I'll be itching to make videos about medicine. I'll be itching to talk about some self-growth stuff. Um, so I don't want to restrict myself in that way. Um, so for me, it was just like, okay, I'm going to go in there as I am, which is a bit of medicine, a bit of design, a bit of self-growth. Um, and if anything else additionally pops up on top, that's fine. I'm just going to do it because ultimately I need to be enjoying the process. I need to like what I'm doing uh, for me to want to keep doing it. So right now I have a cocktail of different things that I talk about on my YouTube channel and I'm absolutely happy talking about those things and making content around that. And I think eventually, in terms of the audience as well, you'll start to find an audience who are also interested in the cocktail of things that you're interested in. So I find that with my channel, yeah, there are a lot of medics following me, but they also seem to be the medics that are interested in design because they DM me saying like, um, I'm a medic, but I'm also interested in design. What do you use or what do you do? Uh, can you help me? So there is a, this crowd of medical designers or medic designers um, and it was just a case of finding them and I'm slowly tr starting to find those people so for whatever you know um, combination of interests that you have there will always be an audience for that and I think it's really difficult as a creator to realize that you know the audience is there they will come and find you you just have to have the confidence in knowing that uh, you just have to get started and push content out um, I think, yeah, for sure, that's that's a restrictive factor for a lot of people. They think that, you know, if I start to do my this super unique thing, no one's going to want that because no one's going to want those things. But actually, they will and they will come to you. You just have to believe in yourself. Yeah. And I think that comes down to a lot of things that we've talked about where it's like if you have self-belief and you have a vision and you, you know you know you're helping one other person and if you put that all together you can slowly push your way through and you can try a bunch of things without feeling too demotivated when things don't work because you know you're trying to help someone. And I think that's what you've been doing. And I think hopefully it's been working. Um, but yeah. And just to, I mean, I guess we're already at nearly 50 minutes. Um, just to kind of wrap up, I just have one more question and one more thing to talk about. Um, I think last year, the, the way I met you, was when you sent me a message either on, sent me a message somewhere on Instagram. And I think you had followed me for a little time before that, probably. And then you saw my YouTube videos and I saw your comments and mm -hmm. you engaged. And then you sent me a message and you were like, what do you say? Grab a coffee sometime. Something yeah, like that. Probably, probably. The, the point is, and, and I actually appreciated that because uh, something really good came out of this. Mm -hmm. And usually when I, Sometimes I get conversations, uh, people, people bring up conversations on, on social media and it doesn't feel very genuine. And I felt that when you sent that message, I felt like, okay, this, this seems like a good use of my time. I don't know you, but this seems like a good use of my time. And like, so I've been trying to tell people that you need to ask for what you want. Mm -hmm. And you asked me for what you wanted was to connect and to have a conversation. Mm -hmm. And... Mm -hmm. I also sometimes do have a problem with asking for what I want. So I guess, could you just like share, what would your advice be for people who 
want to network and want to get something, but they just feel like I, I, I'd like there's this barrier. So how, what would you tell them? Yeah. Um, so the first time I learned this or the first time I realized to myself that, you know, I just need to put myself out there and just ask people for things, um, is through my first ever mentor. Um, and this is someone that I found through LinkedIn because I, for some reason, plucked the courage one evening to send a message. Um, I think at that time I wanted to learn more about startups and medical startups. Um, but I didn't know where to go, who to ask. So I just thought, you know, this is a hard thing for me as well. I've never done this before. I never like cold emailed someone, but let me just message this person on LinkedIn. Um, and you know, that was a really transfor transformative experience for me because I ended up working uh, for his startup. He became a lifelong mentor to me. Um, and I think I've written about this in my newsletter as well. I think I titled it the one message that changed my life or something similar to that. Um, and that's when I realized to myself, the power of asking, the power, like if you don't ask, you don't get, but when you ask, the worst that you could receive is a no, right? A little less than that is just like a, you know, no reply, but the yeah. worst you could receive is a no, okay, right? No one is ever then going to like hate you for it or say anything more negative than no. So why should you stop yourself from messaging people reaching out and just trying to network and you know form meaningful connectionships with people that will really help you or navigate you in the right directions when the worst you could receive is no there's no other harm to it like you're not going to lose money when you message someone you're not going <laughs> to nothing bad is going to come of it other than a simple no and at best you know it can change your life you know um, that's how I found my first ever startup role. And then I worked for the startup for an entire year. I learned so much about med tech, med, on, med entrepreneurship and stuff like that. Um, then after that, networking become really easy for me. Uh, I reached out to Ali Abdal and then I had a coffee with him. Then I now work for him. Um, in the same way, I reached out to you because I knew uh, you, you, your videos were great. Your production value was awesome. Um, and your photography content was sick as well. So I was like, I need to network with Aaron because there's so much I can learn from him. And maybe um, I could also teach him something as well. And hopefully I've gained, no, you given have, you yeah, some no, value. You have, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, so yeah. that's, that's how I think about it. When you, when you reach out to people, it has the potential to change your life. And that can happen just with a simple message. Um, so there's really no reason not to reach out to people. Um, if I was to give any actionable advice, I would say, uh, watch my video on YouTube, uh, where I have a video about the story behind how I started working for Ali Abdal. And in that I kind of explain like how to network effectively, but the three things are, uh, reach out in a genuine way. Like if there's a certain thing that you've been enjoying about their content or like the way they do things, tell them, uh, explain to them the impact it's had on your life and why you're reaching out. Um, and then be very specific and really thorough with your request because, uh, yeah, sure, like people like you and I are probably not like the busiest people in the world, but some of the people that get reached out to are really busy people. Um, so with them, you want to be specific. You want to say, you know, I just want 30 minutes of your time to ask X, Y, Z questions um, or something like that. Um, and then after that, if you do end up connecting, remember that only way you're going to perform meaningful connections is if you're really genuine about the whole thing it should never be a one-sided thing you should never use people to you know get something for yourself and not think about them in return and this does happen a lot and i it's always really uh for me it, it doesn't hurt me anymore but i'm always like wow like these people exist um so you want to be really genuine in the way you approach people you want to add value back to their lives if you can or when the chance comes um and and yeah just just you know go for it because the worst that can happen is a simple like rejection or like a no but the best thing that can happen is you know infinite like what what can happen is completely infinite so to so i guess start one by one and work your way up and that's what we've been talking about consistently that you mm -hmm. just have to believe in it and just keep going and right that's it and remember the worst thing is a no ignore whatever right but whatever it is yeah. the the amount of things that you can actually gain from it is just so much 
Well, thank you for being here for my first episode. Hopefully not my last episode. Uh, <laughs> so yeah, okay. Well, thank you for your time and I'll see you later. Thank you.